You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Academy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to October's Tech Policy Recess event. I'm Zach Isakowitz. I'm the Legislative Director for Congressman Michael McCall. Since it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we thought we'd focus today's briefing on a cybersecurity issue. It's no secret that the world today has become more digitized. Americans are spending more time at their computers, on their phones, generating loads of data in the process. Companies are using technology to make their businesses more efficient and more profitable. But as we continue to open up to technology, the cyber risks and threats change. This all leads to the question, how do we know who is behind the screen? Today, we'll hear from some experts as to how digital identity can be used as a tool to enhance cybersecurity. But before we get to the panel, I want to note that this event is hosted in conjunction with the Congressional Internet Caucus and its co-chairs. On the House side of the caucus, co-chairs are Congresswoman Eshoo and my boss, Congressman McCall. On the Senate side, it's Senators Patrick Leahy and John Thune. We do these tech policy recess events during about every congressional recess, so stay tuned for the November sessions. Today, we have a panel of experts who are on the front lines of digital identity issues and cybersecurity. Our moderator today is Jeremy Grant, who is the coordinator for the Better Identity Coalition. Jeremy is also a former official at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And with that, Jeremy, I'll hand it over to you. Great, hey, thanks, Zach. I appreciate the introduction. I'm excited all of you are able to join us today. Uh, I'm Jeremy Grant. I'm Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable's Cybersecurity Practice here in DC. And as Zach said in that role, I also uh, lead an organization called the Better Identity Coalition, which is the one group that's been focused on what I would call the, the policy layer of, of digital identity and this topic we're here to talk about today. Uh, I've been around identity and cybersecurity uh, really as long as I can remember, dating back to my time as a Hill staffer in the 90s. I've also spent time in industry building digital identity systems and had a second stint in government uh, leading the digital identity efforts at NIST. So our discussion today is on digital identity, cybersecurity's new hope. And with this Star Wars-themed title, I was tasked as your moderator with coming up with a not-too-ridiculous Star Wars metaphor to kick us off today. So here goes. There's 19 years that passed between Star Wars Episodes 3 and 4, 19 years where Darth Vader was just doing awful things to the galaxy and his preferred attack vector to get what he wants, using the force, the dark side of it at least, to crush his enemies. So in the real world, our adversaries in cyberspace, be they organized criminals, hostile nation states, malicious hackers, they're the Darth Vader that we're up against. But instead of using the force to attack us, they're generally using identity. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back over the last 19 years to look at every major breach and cybercrime incident that's been in the news, it's an anomaly to find one where identity did not provide the attack vector whether it was the target breach in 2013, the Office of Personnel Management in 2015, the Equifax breach in 2017, the 2020 solar winds incident, or the Uber breach last month, the attackers got their initial foothold into the target by compromising passwords, or in some cases, compromising the multi-factor authentication that was put in place to guard against password-centric attacks. All of these targeted what most people would call the authentication layer of digital identity looking at the way that you're signing in once you've been issued an account. We've also seen a ton of attacks that are targeting what, means, what most people call the identity proofing layer of digital identity, which is that process you go through to prove who you are when you're first opening an account, say applying for a credit card or perhaps a government benefit. These are attacks that exploded during the pandemic. Uh, just two weeks ago, the Inspector General of the Department of Labor published a report saying that organized criminals stole more than $45 million 
from state pandemic unemployment insurance programs. In most cases, they were using stolen identity data to slice through the weak ID verification systems that states had in place more smoothly than Darth Vader could slice off Luke's hand with a lightsaber. And these attacks on identity proofing aren't just limited to government benefits. Last month, the deputy director of FinCEN, Jenny, uh, Jimmy Kirby at the Treasury Department, said of the more than 3 million suspicious activity reports that banks were filing with FinCEN in 2021, uh, these are the reports that banks are filing when they see evidence of a financial crime, the majority of them were tied to breakdowns in the identity verification process. So as we're sitting here today as the start of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, it's really fitting we're taking some time to focus on the intersection of digital ID and cybersecurity. Now, I've talked a lot about the dark side of the force, but much as the force also has a light side that can be used for good, so too does digital identity. Thus, the title of this session being A New Hope, because identity, when we get it right, can be what I call the great enabler, delivering online experiences that are more secure, that are better, than privacy, better for privacy, and much easier to use than what most people are used to today. So when we get identity right, it allows us to vanquish those attackers and adversaries on the dark side. So with that, I wanna take a moment to introduce our panel, or even better, I'm gonna let each of them uh, introduce themselves and also say a few words about the work they've been doing in and around the digital identity space. Uh, I'll say up front, we've got Connie LaSalle from NIST, Sean Frazier from Okta, uh, Kara Mumford from uh, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, and Tim Weiler with uh, Congressman Bill Foster. Connie, let me start with you and just uh, let you introduce yourself. Great. Well, first, thank you to our hosts for the invitation to join you all today. And thank you, Jeremy, for taking on the role as moderator uh, and for the, the excellent Star Wars puns to, to kick us off. <laughs> um, so my name is Connie LaSalle. I'm a senior technology policy advisor within NIST, uh, which is within the Department of Commerce. Uh, and I, I thought I'd start with a bit of background about NIST for those who could use a, a refresher to our work uh, and our unique role. So first, NIST is a non-regulatory institution. And I, I highlight this, I double down on this frequently because our status as non-regulatory has allowed us to collaborate with industry uh, as an honest and trusted broker since our founding in 1901. Um, NIST's mission is to promote US innovation and industrial competitiveness by advancing measurement science, standards and technology in ways that enhance economic security and improve our quality of life. Um, the impact of this work extends to almost every aspect of our daily lives and often in ways that I know that I, I certainly take for granted. Um, continuing with the Star Wars extraterrestrial theme, um, an example of our, our impact is the NIST F1 atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado, which is part of a small collection of clocks that sets the official time for planet Earth. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I think at least. Uh, and specifically within the NIST IT lab, we work to cultivate trust in information technology with the aim of responding to demand signals that we see from various markets, government agencies, uh, and the general public. Our research has provided state-of-the-art technology benchmarks and guidance to industry and federal agencies um, that depend on information technologies, including those that support identity management. Um, so as a, as a senior tech policy advisor at NIST, I have the opportunity to engage on a wide array of both policy and technical topics uh, that NIST cares about, including identity. So I'm really thrilled to be diving into some of those topics here with you all today. Thanks. Thanks, Connie. 
Uh, next up, wanted to throw things over to Sean Frazier, who's the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Hey, Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Good to be with this esteemed panel of folks. Um, I've been doing this almost as long as Jeremy has. I started my career kind of back in the 90s at a little company called Netscape, where we tried to get people on the internet. It turns out this internet is, is kind of a thing. Seems like it's got legs. Um, I was a cybersecurity guy before I even knew I was a cybersecurity guy, just because we used to have this saying in Netscape that nothing really happens until someone tries to log into something. So it's one of the reasons why we still have one of the first directory services based on open standards to protect the applications that we were rolling out to folks. So I actually consider myself more of a, of a user experience uh, nut than a privacy or security nut, because I really think about that being the unspoken thing around security, which is user experiences and getting people access to things quickly. And Jeremy talked very eloquently about the, the need to be able to provide better services to, to citizens and to, to folks who need access to technology. Um, right now, I'm, I'm kind of running the, the federal program at Okta, where we're embarked on a lot of different uh, programs and projects around uh, what we consider critical infrastructure for identity, so FedRAMP High, uh, DISA High Impact Level for access to services for our mission partners in the DOD space. And it turns out that identity is pretty important for some of these things. And it's not the zero trust pillar one for by accident. You know, there's a reason that, that we talk about identity as kind of being kind of the core construct as we roll out security. And, and while people call me zero trust true believer, which I kind of am, I just look at this as security. I think 10 years from now, we're just going to be calling this security. We're not going to have any fancy names and titles to it. We're just going to be looking at this as the way we just build security from the ground floor into good experiences for users. Hey, great. Thanks, Sean. Uh, up next, I want to throw things over to uh, Kara Mumford with the Senate His Guy. Hi, Kara. Hello. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us today. Um, my name is Kara Mumford, and I am the Director of Governmental Affairs um, for Senator Portman on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful committee, and our jurisdiction um, matches that. It's a very, very broad jurisdiction. We have everything that is a government-wide issue, so that would include digital identity. Um, but we also have uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and so we have that specific cybersecurity um, tilt to it, our jurisdiction as well. Um, and so I feel like we have a really unique vantage point because we get to kind of straddle that, you know, government wide and then also security specific um, jurisdictional issues. Um, so I have been with the senator since 2018. Um, I've been on his GAC since 2021 when he took over as ranking member of the committee. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to just mention and preface my comments today is that, uh, you know, here I'm speaking from my personal capacity and not necessarily as a representative of him or representing his perspectives. Um, but with that, I just wanted to say thank you to the rest of the panelists and for you all again, um, but looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thank you. And uh, Tim, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy, and uh, thanks, everybody, for being here, and again, Jeremy, for moderating. Uh, my name is Tim Weiler. I serve as counsel to Representative Bill Foster, um, who has been very engaged in the digital identity space and more broadly in the cybersecurity space uh, uh, since his time in Congress. Um, he's got one particular bill, the Improving Digital Identity Act, and a, a almost synonymous uh, Strengthening Digital Identity Act, um, both of which um, try to set up some NIST standards to uh, ensure a government-wide approach towards a better digital identity. Um, the original broader package had some grant money to states who are exploring mobile driver's licenses and such. Um, this has been a keen interest of my bosses for a while now, so we're happy that uh, it's starting to get some traction. I'm very excited to be here. Great, thanks. So we've now uh, heard a little intro from each uh, of our panel members. So 
Let me start with a question to each of you. And to tee things up, in 1993, The New Yorker magazine published a cartoon where a dog's on his computer and he turns to his friend, who is being a dog, another dog, and famously says, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. I think this is uh, year after year, The New Yorker say, or, uh, says this is the uh, cartoon that is most replicated uh, and that they're best known for from all the cartoons they've had over the years. But 1993 was a long time ago. Fast forward 29 years, the dogs from that cartoon are now sadly a blessed memory because of dog years. But it seems like we're seeing the fact that it's still so easy to be a dog on the internet being actively weaponized against us. And you know, to that point, I talked before about the massive increase in identity-related cybercrime earlier. It's also worth noting the majority of ransomware attacks start with a compromised ID. So sort of an open-ended question for each of you from the unique positions that each of you have where do you each see the greatest opportunity for digital identity to help mitigate cybersecurity risk and improve our cybersecurity posture? Should we just jump in? We can jump in, Connie. I think <laughs> okay, great. Say. Sure, I know, yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, the short answer for me is that there's an opportunity for digital identity to play a role in almost any circumstance where access to something valuable is being brokered. And I'm not just talking logical access through a device, I'm talking physical access as well as, as the merger of the digital and physical worlds continues to happen. Uh, and I, I don't feel like I would be doing my job if I didn't also mention that NIST digital identity guidelines uh, lay out a risk-based approach to selecting a set of, of controls, including technologies, practices, and processes that, that organizations across sectors of all different sizes can implement. Um, to improve their cyber posture while managing other risks and balancing those other risks related to privacy, equity, usability, and, and other factors. Thanks. Other perspectives? Yeah, I think you, you, you hit a, a very salient point with the, uh, the unemployment fraud and generally in the pandemic, we saw uh, that a huge spike in that, um, mainly because I think we largely transact, interact, and broker online, and we're still using these kind of um, legacy paper forms of identity to do that. So there's kind of an inherent mismatch there, an opportunity for people to take advantage of it. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that a more secure digital identity would, first off, be way more convenient, easier for consumers, but also just much stronger. And uh, that's actually how we kind of got uh, traction for our bill in the first place through um, OGR. Is it just, uh, I think it was an unemployment hearing. Great, thanks. Well, and let me, sorry, Kara, over to you. No, I was just gonna say, I think um, one thing that's really exciting about digital identity is that there's kind of a little bit of something for everybody. There's the security aspect, there is the anti-fraud aspect, there's the preventing cybercrime aspect. And so when you have an issue like that, you can kind of generate support on both sides of the aisle in a really productive way. Um, and so I think that that kind of in and of itself is an opportunity for digital, digital identity to improve cybersecurity. It's not necessarily from the technical perspective, but more from the practical perspective of getting people on board and actually moving an issue forward. Thanks. And Sean, any perspectives on where there's great opportunities on digital identity? Yeah, I think they're everywhere. I think part of me thinks that it's taken us a longer, much longer time to get here than I thought it would, considering how long we've been logging into things on the internet. But I also think from a positive aspect that sometimes the technology has to kind of catch up to where we are and provide those those good experiences. Because if I look over the, the years of where we've done things, and smart cards are a really good example of this, they were great technology for the time, but my mom can't use a smart card or she would have a really tough time using a smart card. So it'd be really hard to apply that kind of in the 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 citizen or the the commercial sense from a customer 
perspective. So I think we're now at a, at a really good inflection point where we have the technology where we've caught up, where we can provide those strong security aspects, but also the great user experiences that I love. Thanks. And, you know, since we're in a policy forum, let me, you know, turn, you know, to each of you, what are some of the, the policy issues that you're seeing come across your desk related to digital identity? And what are some of the things that folks in this webinar who are learning to, you know, looking to learn a little bit more about the intersection of digital identity and cybersecurity and what we might see the government do, what should they be thinking about here? Tim, I might start with you given. Yeah, sure. Um, so one of my other kind of primary roles for Congressman Foster is uh, I handle most of his work on the financial services committee and uh, it's kind of a weird song and dance uh, having him, you know, try to emphasize the importance of a digital identity is it's not really in a financial service committee's jurisdiction, but it's a really important conversation to have. And it comes up frequently because you are constantly authenticating yourselves uh, through your mobile apps uh, to your bank, uh, your bank doing it on your own behalf. Um, so whenever it comes up and we say like, hey, would this be, you know, uh, at least a convenient application, you know, banks are get all bright eyed and say, yeah, yeah of course. But uh it's it's just been kind of a strange go to you know have to talk about that in a you know a jurisdiction a committee where we don't really have private jurisdiction. Um, but on that note, it's just it almost seems like a no brainer anytime this conversation comes up. Um, I think it's just for for know your customer anti money laundering aspects. It would just make uh, things much easier, uh, much quicker, and save everybody a lot of money. So it's it's certainly just a recurring theme, um, and we've just been kind of hammering the message on that. Um, yeah, as Sean said, it's it seems kind of crazy that we haven't gotten there yet, but um, you know we're happy to see that the wheels are at least moving. Kara, Sean, County, perspectives. Sure. I think as far as questions that I'm being asked frequently related to the the policy element of digital identity, um, privacy implications are probably number one right now, uh, followed by topics around bias and equity fraud and supply chain uh, risk management, um, creative ideas about how to stimulate market growth uh, and how enterprises of all, all kinds and, and specifically federal agencies should be balancing all of these different objectives while they're designing, procuring, um, or even federating with uh, an identity solution. Yeah, I would I would agree that I think privacy concerns are a really big question when it comes to digital identity. And then the other thing I would add to that list is how how um, both the federal government and the state governments kind of treat digital identity and how they interact. Because you know ultimately a lot of the identity issuers are at the state level, but then you also have you know the State Department issuing passports, Social Security Administration, and so figuring out how to kind of get all of these entities to work together, I think, is a really big challenge. I think the only thing I'd add, and I love Connie's comments about um, you know equity and, and making sure we're building things in that everyone can can participate in. So it's not just a one class of folks who can do really cool stuff, and the other class of folks have to do the hard stuff. That's super important. The other thing that's super important is to have flexibility and agility with some of these things because the technology is changing so quickly that I think well, by the time we put a stake in the ground, right? It's that old Gretzky you know, saying about the, you know, skate to where the puck's going, not to where it is. And we have the, uh, the propensity to kind of put a stake in the ground where the puck is and forget about where the puck is going. So as the things we're building, if we can pro provide some ability to be flexible and agile uh, as new guidance comes out, as new technology comes out, so that folks can kind of apply those or think about how to apply those in their future self versus where they are today. 
Great, thanks. I'm going to come back to the privacy issue in a bit, um, but I wanted to, to dig a little deeper for, with Tim and Kara on um, talking about the gap between physical and digital credentials, at least in terms of what consumers are dealing with. Um, so Tim, you know, you mentioned your boss authored bill, the Improving Digital Identity Act that, that's focused on this topic, and Kara, the HISGAC just marked up a revised version of the bill last week. Um, and, you know, that really puts a heavy focus on closing this gap between the paper and plastic credentials we use in the physical world to prove who we are and the lack of any real counterpart, uh, you know, in the digital space that we can use online. Can each of you talk just a little bit about the bill and what might come next in, uh, in the legislative process? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'll start. Um, so mainly, uh, one of the main things it does is uh, assemble the task force with uh, a couple of different agency heads um, involved to try to set up, you know, what a digital identity implementation would look like uh, here in America. And uh, embedded within that is the important, uh, sorry, my dog is about to get excited at the mailman, um, the important standards that NIST has to set for us to make sure that we're, you know, um, doing things in a privacy-preserving way. Um, and uh, there was also a bit of grant money. I don't think that made that into the Senate version, but maybe that's where Kara uh, can pick up. Sure. So we in the Senate, we worked um, closely with, uh, uh, I think it was Cinema's team and, and also Senator Lemus's team to come up with um, a bill that we could put on our markup. Um, and, you know, our perspective, I think, in building and um, editing the bill that came out of the House was trying to come up with something that, um, you know, could empower the task force to come up with recommendations and not, you know, necessarily, uh, we didn't want to presume the outcome of anything that could potentially come out of the task force. Um, and we wanted to make it so that it, um, the task force would actually come up with, you know, productive recommendations to move the ball forward. Cause I think that there's a recognition from everyone that this is a really important issue and it warrants, um, you know, really in-depth study and attention, not just from the federal government, but bringing in outside stakeholders. Um, and so that's, that was kind of our perspective. And I was glad that we could, you know, work closely with our, with our partners, um, across the aisle and actually, you know, get it through the markup. Right. Thanks. And uh, Tim and Connie, I wanted to ask you about, there was another portion of the original bill that Congressman Foster uh, introduced that was dealing with NIST work and digital identity and the need for a framework that if I'm, you know, be it a local vital records bureau who wants to do a digital birth certificate or the state department with a passport or a DMV at the state level who wants to close this gap between physical and digital, uh, you know, how do they have sort of a playbook of, of standards and best practices they should follow? Um, and, you know, that was something that uh, I know Congressman Foster was successful in peeling off from the original bill and getting included in the NIST reauthorization that was part of the Chips and Science Act that became law uh, just a couple months ago. So I wondered, uh, you know, Tim, if you could talk a bit about the provision in Connie, now that NIST has been directed to take on new work here, you know, any thoughts on what we should be expecting? Oh, well, I'll, I guess I'll, just, I'll highlight the provision. I think Connie's probably going to have a better read on what we should expect going forward. But uh, I think it, it, it managed to, um, you know, directedness to, to kind of tell us how we can make these systems interoperable, like you said, amongst uh, different. Right now, it's a very kind of um, segmented approach with our DMVs. Our state DMVs kind of all do their own things. So we need to find a way for them to talk to each other effectively if we're talking about uh, some sort of a national digital identity, uh, something that's going to work in every state, kind of like the real identity regime. Um, so we kind of already have that laid out, but we need to transfer that to, you know, what we put together for um, in the digital space. Um, and they also, you know, 
wants to make sure that we're using you know strong identity proofing, proofing and uh, again, just a really robust uh, privacy protection regime uh, in whatever we develop. So I think that's a really important you know set of standards that NISC is uh, up to task with. I would agree. <laughs> I think uh, symbolically, it is an enormous win that this identity work has been recognized to the extent that it has been through Chips and Science. Um, and it's not just for NIST. I think it's a big deal for all of our stakeholders who are consistently, even to this day, <laughs> communicating the value of our work and calling on us to to do more in this space, and you know we can we can do more with more is our is our go to response. Um, so I think expect even more of the excellent both foundational and applied research that the program has delivered over the last few decades. Um, I think as we touched on earlier, there are a lot of challenges and also new opportunities associated with identity verification, uh, and some of the ones that we want to explore more deeply include proofing methods um, that balance security, privacy, usability, inclusivity. I mean, I could just keep adding priorities to that list, but really finding the balance um, and offering additional options to both enterprise customers, but also consumers. Um, stronger and more accessible authentication methods. Not everybody has the same resources, whether that's uh, bandwidth or a mobile device. Um, you know, consistent ability to provide identity evidence, that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, and then looking at various uh, federation models and different approaches that can help to support greater interoperability, just like, like you mentioned. Um, and I think in, in the near term, we're really focused on better understanding people's experiences implementing our existing standards and guidelines so that our work is even more relevant, timely, and, and responsive to those most pressing needs. Great, thanks. So the last couple of questions have been talking a lot about legislation looking at the, the consumer side of identity, you know, what you know, most Americans are dealing with in their day-to-day -day lives. But there's also the big focus on enterprise security. And you know, I mentioned earlier the role compromised identity credentials played in the Solar Winds incident. That led in large part to the strong focus on identity in the White House Zero Trust Strategy which was finalized in policy as OMB memo 2209 about nine months ago. Um, Sean and probably Connie again, although anybody else who wants to jump in too, just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that strategy and more to the point, why is it that securing the identity layer of systems is so important uh, and essential to implementing zero trust architectures in the enterprise world? Yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly it forces us to think more holistically about security. And as I mentioned earlier, we can call it zero trust today. I don't care what we call it 10 years from now, we'll just be calling it security kind of baked in. I think the the apt um, Star Wars metaphor here is that, you know, if an 18 year old kid can can drop a torpedo into an exhaust port and wreck your business, then you haven't thought about security holistically and you haven't really thought about what are all my attack vectors and how can I protect folks who are trying to access things. Um, and, and I also mentioned that, you know, identity is, is pillar one for a reason because it's the foundation on which all other things are potentially built. Um, nothing happens till someone tries to, or something tries to access something to access data. So zero trust is really all about, you know, kind of treating data as the crown jewel and figuring out what the access modalities are to the data, what the protection modalities are to the data. 
um, making sure you have all those protections put in place. I think one of the challenges that that we, we've seen over time is that it's taken us a long time to get to kind of full multi-factor authentication. And, and while we've been doing that, the attackers have been taking advantage of that because we've really left it as low-hanging fruit for the attackers. And I think up-leveling those things, like making sure that, you know, strong phishing-resistant multi-factor um, is, is important, strong single sign-on with, with strong protections are important. These are both not only, you know, security, but also end-user enabler capabilities as well, if we think about them, because they enable users to kind of get access to things in a, in a seamless way, provided we use uh, mechanisms that are that are that seamless. But I think that really kind of starts there in, in regards to, you know, there's data that someone needs to get access to right away, very um, transparently. And we've got to protect the mechanism that folks get, you know, use to get there um, across the board, not just for some, but for all. And that's part of the challenges too. We've, get, we've commonly seen where folks will get kind of 80% there with MFA and the last 20% is the hard part. So they don't necessarily get there. You got to get there for your privilege accounts, for your user accounts, for your admin accounts, you know, for your executive accounts. And, you know, and even if anyone logs into something, you got to be holistic across the board. I can only say plus one to everything Sean just said. And I think as uh, federal agencies and their commercial partners begin implementing their zero trust plans that were required out of the, the zero trust strategy, I expect we'll learn a lot from them, uh, including the good, bad, and uh, the ugly. <laughs> Thanks. And I wanted to ask a follow-up on that and actually, you know, tying to what you were saying, Sean, around the need for phishing, phishing resistant authentication. I mentioned in my opening remarks in last month's Uber breach, the attackers not only compromised passwords, they also managed to bypass the MFA Uber had in place. Uh, we're seeing this happen more and more these days where some of the legacy tools that we use like a one-time passcode or pushing yes on a, a push notification, you know, you can socially engineer somebody to handing over a passcode or pushing approve, which is one of the big reasons M2209 said agencies really need to move to MFA that is specifically phishing resistant. So you, you know, aren't susceptible to those attacks. Where do you all see the market going with MFA right now, given, you know, that guidance, as well as, you know, the, the fact that the attackers seem to have caught up to some of our, our, you know, first and maybe even second generation attempts with this technology? Yeah, I would say, of course they did, because we made it easy for them for a long time with just the password. And we had MFA, we made it a little harder. So we're pushing the attackers up the sophistication stack, which is good. It costs them more. Remember, attacking is a business. So the more it costs them, the more painful it is for them, but we have to move them further up the complication stack and add way more friction for the attackers. And, and I'm a big believer in adding friction for attackers and not for users. And I think that's where phishing resistant authentication comes in because we can use something like a biometric on an iPhone or, or a MacBook, which is really simple for a user to use. Again, I go back to my mom as the litmus test. She can use face ID, she can use touch ID. That's pretty simple for her. And by the way, it's a stronger authentication. Thanks. Connie, any perspectives or Tim or Kara, if you want to jump in on that topic as well? Yeah, I think just, you know, pulling on one thing that that Sean has has mentioned in his his comments. Um, I'm hoping to see more phishing resistant options that are broadly available, affordable, portable, privacy protective, and easy to use. You know, if we're not hitting the all of those factors, um, I, I don't know how how we can expect adoption. Uh, gains the way that we really need to, to create that friction for the attacker, to raise the bar. Um, and not just one set of individuals at a time, but but for everybody. Um, being mindful of the fact that, again, not everybody is going to have, you know, the same access to the same resources to raise the bar, at least not 
at first um, has to be part of the conversation so that we're not stuck <laughs> back at you know square one again for certain groups of people. Um, and so that we're not worsening existing inequities that are contributing to the, the kind of digital divide um, that we're now having to address uh, because we didn't think of it <laughs> however many however many decades ago. Thanks. And uh, Sean, just one follow up uh, again on the Okta side. Obviously, you all are a company that you know supports a lot of implementations, both in government and the private sector. Other examples where you're seeing zero trust architectures really successfully implemented, uh, and you know what are some of the lessons that that the public sector might want to take from some of what we're seeing in the commercial sector, or vice versa, for that matter. Yeah, we see a lot, um, and I think the the what separates the the successful implementations from the ones that struggle a little bit is really just the mindset shift of how you you would you work towards zero trust. If you view it as as kind of changing your lifestyle, your security lifestyle within your organization, and, and protecting the things that are important. So first of all, identifying what those are, identifying what the access capabilities or the access modalities are to get to those things. You have a much better chance than folks who sometimes look at it as yet another unfunded mandate. So one of the things that, that challenges some folks as you look at it and say, okay, well, someone's telling me I need to do this. I don't know what this is. This is probably something I got to go buy from somebody and just layer onto the other 10 things that I bought. If you're looking at it from that perspective, you're kind of looking at it in the exact opposite way of the way you need to. You need to think about how you kind of build it in holistically into your organization Start and really start from a piece of data that needs to have access to it. And then you build out from there. And if you kind of start and start and think about it, and, and I know it's hard because a lot of organizations, both commercial and public sector, have a lot of legacy. There's a lot of stuff that's been hanging out there for many, many years where like, oh gosh, I can't go back and touch that because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So start with the things you're building now and work your way backwards and figure out, okay, how, how do I you know build this approach as I'm updating things? Because all things get updated. Um, you know, Even the legacy things have to get updated over time. You have a plan, put a plan together. I think for the folks who look at this and think, I got to go buy something, I don't know how I'm going to implement it, that's a challenge. But if you put a plan together and figure out, start with the data and then move your way out, you'll be much more successful. And we see a lot of folks doing that. Thanks. So I want to shift a bit to the technology side of the house. And I say up front, I, I tend to approach identity from a technology agnostic philosophy. The idea being we shouldn't be leading on the policy side with the view that this particular technology is the solution to an identity problem. Let's first to find the problem we're trying to solve and then select the best technology. That said, I think it's really hard to get too far into one of these conversations without somebody saying, but what about biometrics? And what about blockchain? So now that I've asked those questions, what about them? What do you all think? I, I love biometrics, not, not so big on blockchain for identity yet, but we'll see. We'll see. I, you know, I, I go back to my early days at Netscape and the reason the internet got so successful so quickly was it really was the, the adherence to standards and building standards that everyone could build to. Um, that accelerated a lot of things that we did back in the 90s to get everyone on the internet. And I think we got away from that for a long period of time. We're starting to get back. And I think that's the one exciting thing for me about identity is identity is kind of leading the charge on building in open standards um, to get to Connie's point about you know, everyone should have access to this. I mean, everyone who has a phone in their pocket, everyone who has a you know smartwatch on their wrist should be able to have access to the same strong authentication that that I have if I'm in an organization with all the money in the world. Thanks. Connie or Kara or Tim, want to weigh in on technologies at all? So I, I tend to agree with you. You should focus on the problem you're you're trying to solve uh, rather than um, create solutions in, in search of a problem. Um, and I think the technology should be viewed as a wonderful enabler, but it is a means to an end. 
Um, and I'm I'm intrigued by the promise of distributed ledger technologies like like blockchain. Um, I'm curious to keep learning about the trade-offs. Uh, you know, just like other once novel technologies, I know the internet has come up. You know, cloud has not been, been mentioned yet, but it was sort of viewed as magic at one point in time. Um, the tranche of technologies that that you mentioned are are exciting to me and and potentially transformational. I think at the same time. Um, they will and and already have started to introduce some real challenges that that this community and others are going to have to contend with, both um, technically and as a matter of of policy. Um, and Sean, I, I appreciate the shout out and support of standards. Clearly, uh, it's in our name. Uh, Mist is going to continue to advance those underlying standards, um, plus measurement science, plus all the research that's critical to you know whether it's distributed ledger technologies or um, cryptography. Uh, and we have every intention of continuing to play a role um, in shepherding in the next era of, of uh, more responsible innovation. Thanks. Other perspectives? I think from the Hill perspective, and I, I don't want to speak for Tim, but at least from my perspective, you know, remaining technology agnostic is really, really important because we're dealing with everything at the 30,000 foot level. And so the second that we start talking about individual technologies and putting them you know, into laws potentially like that, I think sets up a really potentially problematic situation down the road where those technologies either get phased out or they need to be, you know, they are no longer, um, you know, up to date or anything like that. And so I think that from my perspective, I do a lot of work and a lot of thinking to try and remain agnostic and to build enough flexibility into the, the way that we're thinking about issues so that they can kind of evolve um, and you don't have to be changing laws or, you know, amending committee reports, which is not a thing, but, um, you know, to actually make it so that the things still make sense. Yeah, that's certainly been our outlook as well as, you know, we're, we're just generally agnostic that on the, whatever way this gets done, um, you know, we're supportive of, but, you know, generally we don't want to do something that doesn't make sense five to 10 years from now. Um, but I will say, particularly with biometrics, I think if we're really trying to get away from these legacy forms of identity unless we're going to you know tie our digital identity you know if when you're signing up on your you know mobile wallet or whatever if you have to punch in your social security number uh, we're kind of defeating the purpose there so on some level you know biometrics very well may have a role to play but we need to you know make sure that that's done responsibly and um you know that it doesn't leave anyone behind in, in, in certain areas um but certainly um second everything that the other panels have said is we need to you know kind of keep it up in mind with this and uh you know focus on a uh solutions-based architecture here instead of you know just trying to solve one problem um you know do something that we're, we're just building something from the ground up we're not just looking to pinpoint one particular area to to to, to fix here thanks and tim if i could just ask a follow-up uh, i know congressman foster has been a you know very strong interest in the possibility of a central bank digital currency and has talked quite a bit about how he views solving the digital identity conundrum as being key to enabling, you know, something like a CBDC. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and sort of where he's coming from on this and some of the work you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was uh, kind of his foray into this interest in the first place uh, was the just inherent need uh, to authenticate yourself when you're using you know, legal tender. Um, right now you use cash pretty much anonymously, but 
um, at the rate and speed of transactions that a CBDC would offer, um, that's just untenable. And I think, you know, maybe just last week, uh, Fed Chair Powell said that uh, using a CBDC would absolutely not be purely anonymous. Um, I think everybody understands the logical nexus that we've seen play out with, you know, um, um, purely anonymous cryptocurrencies, uh, their their ability to be used uh, in malicious ways. Um, I guess the jury's still out on the extent that it's happening, but it's certainly possible. And there's just no way that the U.S. government is going to um, you know, just offer that on their platform as, you know, kind of a, a place where you could use fraud or that sort of thing. Um, so certainly it's a, it's a necessary element and uh, it just makes sense. You know, there's no reason why you should be putting out your driver's license to uh, transact with a, <laughs> a U.S. stable coin or something of the like. Um, so certainly very important and, uh, you know, closely tied to it. Thanks. And it's actually, I'm going to, we have a bunch of questions that have come into the q and I don't think we'll have time to address all of them, but on the privacy side, and back to the point you mentioned about anonymity, is there a place for anonymous online identities in the future where we might be valuing cybersecurity over private or experimental expression? Does everything need to be fully known, or do we still have some anonymity in the future? Well, it it, it I mean, in my mind, I think it operates, you know, the way that you buy stocks. You know, you don't know who you're trading with. You're doing it through a broker. Uh, so you're pseudonymized. Uh, you have your privacy in that way. But at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, there's a trusted regime and a trusted court system you can go to to say, hey, I was frauded here. Um, who's the guy on the other end? Can we track him down to see what went wrong? Um, and that's just kind of an essential function of, you know, transacting. Um, so I, if you're asking pure anonymity, uh, I, I have a hard time seeing that play out. But certainly there's areas where you just don't want to reveal you know, all aspects of your personal information or your, you know, if you're trying to buy a bottle of wine, they need to know that you're over 21. They don't even need to know your particular age, but you can uh, attest to that with, you know, uh, a digital identity that allows you to release certain aspects of your data um, selectively. Um, so certainly, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that's an essential function. Thanks. Connie, let me ask you to follow up a little bit on that. You mentioned before, you know, NIST produces you know, risk-based guidelines, you know, in some cases you need to be, there needs to be no doubt in terms of who somebody is. In other, you know, cases, the risk might be such that it's less important. Can you talk about where, you know, risk might play a role in terms of anonymity versus being fully or partially known? Sure. Um, you know, I think our our guidance really leaves it up to each organization. We, we our main audience is organizations versus a, a direct consumer. <clears throat> we leave it up to them to decide, you know, what level of proofing they think is probably necessary based on the potential impact should something bad happen. Um, and, you know, from, from that perspective, I think um, we are preparing for a world in which all of the above needs are true, technically, where um, you have a high degree of, of proofing and, and confidence that's required, just whether it's because of the the impact and the risk or because a regulation is telling you, you have to. Um, and then on the flip side, I think there will be some interactions that are, that are lower or negligible impact where um, forcing somebody to uh, provide their identity might have uh, more, more harm than benefit. Um, so I think just making space for all of those possibilities and really interrogating them based on risk 
is is the approach that we've defaulted to. Thanks. And Kara or Sean, any perspectives on the privacy and anonymity question? All right. Uh, since this is a policy forum, we've been spending a lot of time talking about what the government can do on the policy side, but obviously this is something government alone is not going to solve the problem. Where do you, each of you see a role for the expertise and solutions of the private sector in all of this? So I think, um, you know, speaking from the private sector, I think that there's there's certain best practices that can be applied here. I think one of the things that comes out and having conversations with this is that, and again, I'll lean back on the open standards a little bit, is that that really kind of future proofs you when you make decisions about technology, you can kind of plug in and provided you're all speaking the same language and singing the same tune. Um, you know, I, I happen to believe that Okta is one of the best digital identity organizations in, on the planet. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But, you know, you could fire me and go to somebody else that provided you had the right open standards. And it's not, you know, it's not a big heavy lift and it shouldn't be a big heavy lift. You should be able to move technology stacks. Technology changes over time, as I mentioned earlier, all kinds of new things come out. Maybe blockchain becomes a thing and you want to plug in a blockchain identity system and you want to be able to have it tie into the same open standards that we've been using for the last 10 years. That should be a, the ability and you should have the ability to do that. One of the challenges is when you get kind of locked into technology and, and something that it's not really benefiting you, you're, you're kind of thinking about, okay, this technology company I'm leveraging, but they're not as good as they used to be, but I, it's really hard to unplug that. There's also the propensity to think about, I can build this myself because I know all the things I need to do. I know my data, I know my infrastructure, I know my organization, and you kind of build a very bespoke system. But organizations have gotten in a lot of trouble doing that too, because it's hard to update, it's hard to maintain. It's very easy to build a thing. It's very hard to support and maintain a thing. Thanks. Other perspectives on the role of the private sector? I think for me, it's uh, having a relationship and fostering open conversation between government and the private sector is really important, um, particularly for us on the Hill, because, you know, most congressional staff are not technologists, um, which I think is, uh, you know, a real bummer uh, to a certain extent, because, you know, we have a lot of these conversations and we don't always have all of the technical expertise to be able to make informed decisions about, you know, how we're, we think a certain bill should go. Um, and so that's where I think that having the private sector there to really ask those questions of and say, what do you all think about this? What do you think about that? And how should we be thinking about these problems um, is really important because it gives us a perspective that we don't necessarily have all the time on the Hill. I agree with that. And I think that <clears throat> that's evident in our, in this uh, collaborative relationships with the private sector. I mean, we, we simply would not be able to do a lot of the research that we do without um, their their involvement. Um, I do think, you know, shifting to, to specific areas where I, I see gaps and where um, some, some private sector exploration of those gaps and, and innovation could be helpful. Uh, we need more identity proofing options of all strengths and of all types. Um, and I think particularly thinking about the fact that um, I've seen that some some browsers might shift away from uh, cookies, right? You'll see the role of third-party data decrease. I think that leaves us with an opportunity to explore different, different ways of interacting um, with consumers, thinking about how user experience and related research can yield the kind of information that that others might be collecting on an individual by individual basis, which could have sort of a secondary or, or in some cases, primary positive benefit for, for privacy in addition to raising the security bar. Um, so as a, as a catch-all response, I think privacy enhancing technologies 
um, various implementations of, of digital credentials um, are also really exciting. I think it's it's early days, but if you look at what's happening with mobile driver's licenses and think about that kind of implementation, but for other contexts uh, is, is exciting to me. Um, and I can't wait to see what kind of innovations happen in the next couple of years. So a quick shout out to Connie's organization. There's a sub-organization under NIST called NCCOE, the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence that we participate in. A lot of other um, um, private sector partners participate in as well. And that's a good mechanism for us to share information because we all know this is not a technology problem, but there are technology answers that can be gleaned from looking at how people interact and how systems get plugged together. Um, and those best practices are really important. Okay, thanks. Well, we had a whole bunch of questions that popped up during the questions tab. We're not going to unfortunately have time to get to them today, uh, given that this was, I think we're already a few minutes over the 45 minutes that was expected, but I was told by Tim we could run a little bit over. Let me ask you one final question, which is, as your moderator, what was the one thing I should have asked you about today that I did not? And then what's the answer to that question, of course? Or any other final points or concluding thoughts? I would have liked Without, a, a couple a couple more Star Wars references. I think you started out strong. <laughs> a couple more in the end would have been good. Thank you. Other than that, you were great. <laughs> you got it. Any other final points? I mean, I'll I'll just make one. I I think just wrapping up the conversation, my takeaway is that there are as many challenges as there are opportunities in in the digital identity uh, space today it's a really exciting time to be in identity where there is a lot of a lot of stuff happening there's a lot of momentum um you know and at NIST we're we're working to tackle a lot of them uh but but we need more people so uh to the extent that you can recruit <laughs> more people whether it's on the technical side or or the policy side um I think you'll certainly be hearing from from NIST even more uh and and the more the merrier this is a great time to be involved in in digital identity Thank you. Kara, final thoughts, Tim? And I was just gonna say, kind of tying into your, you know, the last the last topic, talking about you know, the public-private partnerships and the role that, you know, private industry plays. I think at the end of the day that people, you know, despite the healthy criticism of, you know, your government holding on to sensitive information or being custodians of it, I think uh, most people agree that you want your government to, kind of issue your identity. So it's, you know, it's, it's certainly a role that we're excited to fulfill and we should fulfill. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just an important function that I think at the end of the day is, uh, you know, should be trusted to the government. And um, we look forward to, you know, continuing the conversations with the private sector. And uh, that's where we get, as Kara said, most of our uh, expert, expert knowledge. Um, so, you know, certainly think that it's, a, it's, it's, it's moving in the right direction. Great, thanks. And Kara, any uh, any final comments? Um, I don't think I have anything really profound to say to wrap up, but I certainly appreciate the panel um, for being here. It's been a really great conversation and to you, Jeremy, for hosting us. Um, this has been great. And I am really excited to see how these conversations progress because this is certainly not the last conversation we'll have about this issue. Great, appreciate it. Well, Kara, Sean, Connie, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time today. Zach, thanks for the intro. And thanks to Tim Lorden of the Congressional Internet Caucus Academy for uh, hosting this event. Uh, 
everybody have a great afternoon. And uh, if you get the follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to us, or at least to me. I don't know if everybody else can talk, but thanks again, everybody. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks.